The Politics and Human Rights of Feeding Our Children, Episode 6. Thank you for joining me for my Social Edge Conversations. Uh, This is your in-depth magazine on our health, wealth and sustainable future. I hope you're interested in medicine or public health or nutrition or in the politics and economics of sustainable development. I'll give you the evidence, great discussion and the tools you need for your own success. Now, normally I do a little global health roundup, but today I'm going to skip that because we've got two great conversations for you around the politics and human rights of infant feeding. The first is with Gabriel Palmer, author of The Politics of Breastfeeding, a book that's been in print, I think, for over 30 years. She's always fantastic value. And the second is with... uh, Belinda Reeve, who is a lawyer from Australia and who has written a great new article, a lengthy legal article, about the human rights of infant feeding and how they may be being infringed by corporates. So I hope you enjoy these two conversations. Each are just under a half an hour long, uh, and we kick off with Gay Palmer. Is it so important for women to breastfeed if they possibly can? And it is a matter of choice. Yes, but I'm thinking, I just think because I I thought, was I being, you know, I worked in Mozambique in the early 80s and I went back on a very emotional visit back home, it felt like, trip last year. And I thought, you know, meeting all the difficulties and the neurosis and the lactation consultants and all this cerebral facts and knowledge and lactogenesis, all these words. I'd learned most of my, you know, compared with degrees and books, I learned everything I knew about breastfeeding from just living in a society where it was 100%. You know, there was the economy collapse and women did it. Um, And this didn't seem to have any problems and they just got on with it. And I met a woman, a farmer, feeding triplets, laughing when we all said how wonderful it was. You know, why why are we laughing? Of course she could feed triplets. And then I thought maybe I'm being romantic because it's that we all bowderize the past. And then last year, there I was, you know, in Mozambique, in Nampula province and Pemba, and there were women hoeing and carrying huge loads on their heads with swinging their baby around to suckle while laughing and chatting with a friend and, you know, digging for mollusks in the sea with a baby on their back. And, and a lovely a woman with a tiny baby, you know, newborn, about, I guess, four weeks old. And she was taking the tickets in the museum and we were with a guide and they were chatting and the baby was just helping itself and she was sucking. And it was so noticeable, she, she was a young mother, that our guide, who was a delightful man, about 50, was chatting away to her. He obviously knew her. And neither of them even noticed that the baby was sucking. And I thought, this is what I learned. This is what it was. Where it's so normal, it's like I wouldn't notice if you were drink, having a drink of your coffee now. Or if I did, it's unremarkable. How, and that's lost. how important do you think has been the uh, informal sector and the pressure on women to go back to work, particularly in countries where there's very little state maternity leave, for example, the United States of America? Exactly. But, but even uh, in Britain, the, the pressure to go back to work is there for financial reasons for the household. Mm. Um, and then, of course, there is the pressure to terminate breastfeeding earlier than ideal. Yes, and I think that's another, it's a big red herring, and it's really supported by companies, as I just lay out to you from, from that statement in Euromonitor. Yeah. The thing is that women have worked from the dawn of time and done more work than men and been the breadwinners, you know, hunter-gatherers. Women didn't stop because of reproduction. No. They uh, and, and and actually, in the 1980s, there was this four-country study, I've forgotten the authors, but I can, I can tell you a few, where they found that more artificial feeding was done at home by housewives and most breastfeeding done by women who did work outside the home. And that was including Ghana and South America. I can't remember, but they weren't all rich countries. And I think flexibility, I think you could do an evaluation of proper maternity protection and leave, you know, 
And I think you'd find that it would save economies enormous amounts of money. But I don't want to say this is the right way. For example, in Mozambique, they just have two months maternity leave as they had when I lived there 30 years ago. That's all they had. And yet we stayed with some middle class friends and she didn't know what I did at all. I knew the son and, and his wife. And she, she actually was very bourgeois and worked for KPMG. And their cook was terribly heavily pregnant. And then she said to me, because she said, oh, when the cook, you know, when she has her baby, her mother lives around the corner, she'll have two months maternity leave, and then she'll go and breastfeed whenever the baby needs it. Um, because, you know, that's what we do here, she said to me, uh, assuming I was one of those terrible European women who didn't. And she was, you know, a, a bourgeois woman, and she'd done that, and she breastfed her three children. And it was taken for granted, and that really cheered me up. That, that's that's fine for that kind of, you know, local domestic employment. Yes. But what about when you must commute or you're in a factory? Or it's you're... shocking. It's shockingly bad. And the fact that America, is, you know, so many countries don't implement it. And actually, I think half the, you know, the, the women dominate the informal work sector and they don't get protection. And I think it's it's like safe roads and clean water and sanitation it's one of the things that has got to happen and actually the sustainable development goals worry me a bit because this idea i'm totally i identify as a strong feminist who thinks women have the right to earn their living but i think we have to be terribly flexible and and i think we've got to find ways as women have done since the dawn of time of making these compromises and what worries me is this American ideal, because the breastfeeding is going up in America. Oh, really? And, uh, yes, I think it was rising. I, I know when the, the Gates thing with the Lancet series a couple of years mm. ago, I think they mentioned that. But the idea that you express your breast milk and it's given to a baby by a carer um, is not the same as breastfeeding. It's a better second best than artificial feeding, but it's it's not the same. And I've talked, I sort of think of all the mental health problems we have here with, with young people and I and all the all sorts of things. And I've a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist who does infant observation, she notices that when it gets near to the six months, and we're a luxury country that we have six months, um, the woman She's, she anticipates the pain of separation from her child and she starts withdrawing from her child. Well, that interests me because I feel that mothers and babies should be together. And I would like women who don't breastfeed their children to cuddly bottle feed their children. And I think, I think lots of top psychologists, including Penelope Leach, things to mind, say children need two or three people they know well to to care for them so that it's familiar because it's very disruptive. And what bothers me is economic growth, my liberation, women's liberation all over the world has been under the 5% of the world is at the expense of exploiting poor women and all that work. Who's feeding the bottle with the express milk? And, and there's some terrible data about the Philippines where... The wealth rewards in cash terms are, yes. are much are greater. You know, they'll probably earn three times what they would of in course. their local community in cash. But wealth expressed as being able to be with your children yes. <laughs> and to be a parent is hugely damaged. And, and you know, we're, we've created a kind of remittance world where economies are circulating money from absent people doing you know providing uh, cheap service labor to the wealthy countries including uh, britain the national health service absolutely and you said it so perfectly because that's our values so that if the economy is thriving we don't measure how much unhappiness disruption insecurity sadness there is and and i was thinking because I've got a very good Carolyn friend locally, and I know Kerala does a lot of migrant labour, but when we were talking about how it developed, but was poor, but actually had good health care, do you remember years ago, and it's still pretty good, and I said, 
that was because of communism. And she, she said, no, 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 it wasn't. It's because it was a matriarchy beforehand. And she has to go home when her parent died. She's the one who has to go home and do the funeral rites. Interesting. A matrilineal yes. society. And- and, and we always thought it was, oh, it was left-wing politics. And she said, no, and she does the marriage arrangements. And she's, I mean, she's a very good friend, and she says she's a coconut, you know, because she lives here. But so many societies, we worship money too much. And, in fact, I've got a lovely George Mondio account, which, where is George Mondio? Um, this is the Guardian environmental writer. Yes, yes. But he said... Without sufficient public scrutiny, all political systems degenerate into the service of wealth. Yeah. And, and it's just amazing because, you know, we, we keep saying it's good for the economy. And I know in the main, my, my bigger book, I said that we worship it like a religion, like medieval Catholic church, where the peasants didn't understand Latin. Nobody actually understands economics, least of all the bankers and politicians, and yet we worship it and say, oh, it's good for the economy. But I think it's good for the economy to have healthy, happy families and and to have not only that, mothers, I don't think it's kind of do you work outside or inside the home. Women do enormously good compromises, you know, with part-time work. And funny enough, my son is a house husband at the moment mm. who's, who takes the responsibility of everything very happily and does a little bit of freelance work on his computer when his daughter's now started school, but he's still doing, he does all the domestic stuff and his wife's an academic and, and she, she's the ambitious one. And it works really well, but the status, the status is not there. No, and exactly. I think if women didn't feel, you know, when people say, oh, I'm at home, I'm just a housewife, I'm breastfeeding. And I always think it's got nothing to do with baking cakes. I mean, a businessman doesn't clean his office and make the sandwiches when he has an office. This idea that domesticity and suckling a child and caring for your baby have to be linked together is rubbish. Oh, and I see. So, well, let's come on to that because yeah. you're, you were going to talk about a women's entitlement to breastfeed, yes. the, the yes. sort of Amartya Sen idea. And and, and it, so you're saying that in a modern economy, particularly yes. one that where, you know, there's so much that can be done through distance working and all the rest of it, yes. that yes. we should make it uh, an entitlement as part of your employment rights. Is that right? And, and, and part of your rights as a citizen, just like... Right. You and I are entitled to have to have running water and to be able to wash our hands after we go to the loo and and, and people drive on the left, you know, and entitlement to have an MOT safe car. Um, there's all sorts of things that we have in our developed world. And actually, some traditional societies, I, I can remember so fiercely when I was in Mozambique the first time round, there was she was a famous freedom fighter and economist, and I've forgotten her name. And she I invited her to speak at our meeting, and then she she just had a baby, and it was three weeks old. And I said, oh, please, will you bring the baby to the meeting? And she said, of course I'm going to bring my baby to the meeting. Why do you think I am abandoning my child? I mean, she bit my head off. <laughs> and and it, good, and I felt ashamed, and there was no way, you know, and if she'd gone into Parliament or done something. Um, so what? I mean, we're, we're changing fast, which gives me hope. Yeah, I mean the other the other I was very encouraged that um the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation realized uh I, I can't remember when, but it was probably about two or three years ago that they needed to really set an example. And they now offer all their staff, of course they can afford it, but they offer their staff, male and female, one year yeah. of maternity or paternity leave paid. Oh, that's fantastic. Which is uh, pretty staggering actually. And yes. there's a lot of people are taking it, but of course they then feel hugely um, grateful for this. And and I think in the long run it pays dividends because people give their their you know their time and their commitment to the organisation uh, for long after. I think it's you know and, and yes. there should be mechanisms for making this happen, even in relatively small businesses where 
you know, a maternity leave can cause a lot of problems for yes. a year. You know. Yes, yes. And actually, I, I mean, I sort of feel you're touching on dangerous ground because, you know, there is a very powerful um, entity, the Gates Foundation, and there, you know, there's good work, but some people think, why should one person seize all this power and do things? And, and, and I'm, I was just going to say something, it's about that thing of gratitude that they say, oh, it's in your interests in a company. Because, I mean, I don't know about you because I'm older than you, but I was a child of the welfare state, you know, and, and my birth, you know, was just at the time of the NHS. And I think of how my mother got, it was then called the family allowance, all those things, the free dentistry. It was part of the state saying, you are contributing to society. And I just want, in, in, I'll just, if you can bear it, I, I put, when people talk of women-friendly policies, they often mean tolerating childbearing and childcare as though men had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and if men took responsibility for all child-related tasks except breastfeeding, then they would be the more disadvantaged sex. Um, yeah, I mean, the truth, the, because still, I mean, breastfeeding, if you do it for even two or three years, it's a blip, as you well know, Anthony, of what of the demands of your children, yeah. I mean, which we, we accept with pleasure. And if men did everything, all the school stuff, all the PTA, all the sorting out the uniforms, all the, you know, and the woman went off, um, you know, then, then men would find it quite a struggle if that was the convention. And yet men lose status. And I think that's the thing. We do all sorts of things. But if our peers, if society doesn't view us as marvellous, we get dejected. Mm. Mm. But you're right to call me out. I mean, you've been doing that for 30 years, Gay, and I fully accept it. But... um, (laughs) But you are right because, you know, a quote that always rings in my ears is from Mary Wollstonecraft, who says, you know, the poor require justice, not charity. Yes. And I love that quote because it kind of kind of takes things away from aid and philanthropy and into the field of citizens' rights, justice and legality. And, you know, hopefully on this podcast, we're going to follow with um, a a conversation with Belinda Reeve, who's this, I haven't spoken to her yet, fascinating Australian lawyer who's just written a very long piece about how food companies, and she broadens this beyond breast milk substitutes, are basically infringing children's rights. And I'm delighted by this because I've always felt that it's one thing to have campaigners like you and me and others saying uh, this is all very important and good for health. But it's not until you get the nasty lawyers on board that companies really prick mm. their ears up and listen because they know it's going to hit their bottom line. So it'll be fascinating to see what uh, she says about this. But mm. um, back to entitlements. How are we going to preserve this, do you think? Well, I funnily enough, I'm, I'm, I've just read two books which have had a huge influence on me. One is Factfulness by Hans Rosling, yeah. which I'm sure you, you've probably already read, and I loved it um, because it was cheering up. But the other, I'm reading East West Street by, by Philip Sands. Sands, which is all about individuals fighting for human rights and, and you know, inventing the term genocide and inventing crimes against humanity. And I do think, though it's scary, we live in exciting times and, you know, the sexual harassment stuff and all the uh, the gender realignment, you know, the world is getting used to rapid change and it is a bit unnerving. And I think this is a ripe time to say stop, stop harming the health of our children. And and, and I I wrote a little book about complementary feeding and I was – criticizing all this thing about um you know the mass production and i'm afraid the 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 sun stuff of the packages i know the the plumping up passages for all children it's very like baby milk and that was a useful product which saved the lives of orphans and the rare few whose mothers can't feed them in the same way a very marvelous and you know Anne hill was my tutor who inventing this wonderful substance for the clinical session setting is now being given in little packets, little you know squeegee sachets, 
to all children mm. and, it's, and because it makes money. And then I think we're treating children like battery hens. Yeah. And, yeah. and I remember watching a program about Palestinian refugees. This is many years ago. Uh, and it was a doctor who was having to work as a taxi driver to support his family. But it showed the family eating together and the baby toddler sitting on someone's lap and having little tidbits. And I saw the same in China. And here you see a poor, lonely child in a high chair, in a buggy, with something, you know, sachet in its mouth um, and not being part of the lovely family oxytocin rising. You know, when people mm -hmm. eat together, their oxytocin levels go up and the men's too. The whole social, cultural thing of eating, uh, which which makes people healthy, you know. Yeah. The only, the only thing is, um, there's so much emphasis on sort of behaviour and culture, which is fair enough. But I've, I've been watching, uh, you know, there's all these cookery programmes about how if you only buy cheaper vegetables and you make wonderful Jamie Oliver recipes. that it goes much deeper than just the recipes you use. It's mm. the causes mm. of the causes. And he immediately, you know, he's doing this thing in Newcastle, trying to change behaviour so that people eat a much healthier diet. And he realised that the poor of Newcastle, and not just the poor, everyone in Newcastle, are bombarded by misinformation by yes. companies. that, And that there's a whole ecology there of promoting... Um, feed that is uh, that promoting confectionery, for example. All right, sorry. It's all right, we're just... Um, I'll just pause a little bit. because. Yeah. Sorry. So I've yes. been watching the whole... This documentary by Hugo Fernley-Wissenstall, which pinpoints that a lot of the problem for poor and not-so-poor families is that, you know, if you go into a paper shop like WH Smith, when yes. you get to the checkout, you're surrounded by confectionery. That every single uh, cereal from the biggest makers did not mm. have proper traffic light labelling on. And, and in fact, as a result of the documentary, Nestle and I think the other one was Kellogg's have agreed to do that now. But they're constantly finding ways of avoiding their responsibility in order to protect their bottom line. You're so, yeah, I, I, actually, I admire that man. I thought he was, you know, I'm a bit prejudiced against Tolstoyans, but I really liked him, and I have, I want to see it now. I must catch up on that. No, you, yeah, I, and, and we do need that because we need people who are interested in food, and food is a joy. We yes. should all love eating food, and I yes. do, and. And I'm, you know, lucky that I eat a very balanced. Well, I, I love cakes, I but you do. I but, bet you have lovely food. I know you do. Yeah. And the thing is, I went into a couple of years ago. I was in Addenbrooke's Hospital supporting a friend who was having uh, chemotherapy, and we went to have a snack. She had breast cancer, and she got through it. But we went to the canteen there. So this is the biggest teaching hospital in Europe, and and we were trying to get something actually pleasant and nice in a little cafe corner. And they pushed on us a meal deal, which was a packaged sandwich, a packet of crisps and a soft drink. And we said, we don't want the soft drink or the crisps. Can we? And the, she, the woman said, yes, but it's cheaper if you have all three. And, and in fact, I wrote to the chief executive and said, how can you do this? And I know outside, I don't know this still got it, they had Ronald McDonald in the pediatric department in St. George's Hospital. And so I think the companies do it because we let them, we give consent. And again, it comes back to money. Presumably, you know, no government dares, you know, whatever colour, actually kick out the companies. And they're there. I mean, I was thinking that I've got mice in my house at the moment, and they come back regularly. And oh. um, and I think that's what it's like. But they're not mice; they're they're sharks, you know. And they sort of they own us. I think that's yeah. the danger in the world: is that they own us, and governments are more in awe of them, implicating them, than actually serving their citizens. Yes. And and I'm I'm not a revolutionary at all. And, and, in, and in my researches, since we last had a conversation, I, I read a lot about the, first, the Second World War, 
Mm. Where there were dramatic improvements in health and dramatic drops in mobility. Because of rationing. And and, and, and equal distribution of food, fair distribution of food. Masses of vegetables and potatoes because they were grown and cheap. But I didn't realise till I researched this that Britain won the Lasker Prize, an American foundation, for the best public health um, initiative in the world. And I thought, it's amazing because we know what to do. We did it in the Second World War and it saved the nation. And that it, the whole nation's health improved dramatically in just five or six yeah, years. Yeah, the, tr- the trouble is, is, again, to quote George Monbiot, he said, mm. you know, nobody ever rioted for austerity. Mm. And, and that's mm. one of the problems that, you know, everyone, the companies know that people are attracted by sweet things and alcohol and they package them in ways that make everything attractive so that we consume more and more. And in a sense, the the opposition is is like, uh, you know, Gunhild Stordalen and the Eat Forum, who are trying to be very chic about mm-hmm. sustainable food systems, that you, you enjoy it more, it's, beca- it, it's very chic cuisine, it's all the rest of it. And the the problem is that when you've got rising inequality, falling median incomes, people struggling and being bombarded by confectionery and carbohydrate-driven packaged foods, Mm. um, you know, it's it's very, very difficult. And public health in the 21st century seems to be uh, the battles between uh, health and corporates. Yes, I mean, and also when I remember my brother living in Washington in the 70s and he said, people are being de-skilled. And as it happened, I had worked as a waitress in Memphis, Tennessee in the late 60s. <laughs> mm. And there the food was fantastic. It was catfish and hominy grits and greens, you know, it was southern mm. food. And then people stopped knowing how to cook. And the same thing happened here where people stopped knowing how to prepare food. But, and there, people, but there was uh, a reason. Well confused. I'm but, a baked beans on toast person, by the way, and I'm a marvellous cook, but none of this goji berries and rubbish. I'm I'm grilled sardines and, and, and baked beans on toast. I mean, the, they're a fantastic food. You know, my mother-in-law is a domestic science teacher, or was. Oh, a ruined teacher. Yeah. It got taken apart, you know, she taught a whole generation of people in a town in Yorkshire how to cook, how to prepare meals, yes. you know, uh, how to budget, how to yes. manage your, you know, your weekly accounts and do your shopping and stuff. And she still gets people coming up to her in the street and saying, oh, thank you so much for everything you taught me. But, of course, home economics got dismantled By from, from the education system. Was it Margaret Thatcher? It was Margaret Thatcher. Funny enough, Norma Major was a was a domestic science teacher too. And I think, and I even if you don't cook as you were taught at school, it makes you confident to do things. Yeah, exactly. And 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 it, but I and now I think people are terrified because you watch, you know, these programs on television, not, and you think cooking is something complicated and difficult. Yeah. And yeah. but they could ban advertising. I mean, I think rather than have a sugar tax, they could ban all food advertising. And accept fresh food or something. And, of course, that might be against the Constitution. But certainly, they have a watershed in, in certainly not advertising to children. It could be regulated and restricted if the political will was there. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's much worse here. We are the most obese in Europe. I just went to Czech, Czech, Czech Republic um, a few weeks ago. And they still have wonderful traditional food. This is yet in the cheap places. And they have lentil and sausage stews and various peasant stuff yeah and isn't mass advertising it's, it's cultural uh, but i think as soon as you advertise all these things i think we are the worst in europe i've yeah. always had better food and seen more traditional culture and yeah. i don't know quite because we're following the american model which is a disaster yeah well look it's been a great pleasure to chat as usual and i'm going to come back to you again uh, for further things now that we've re-established contact. 
Okay, my next guest is uh, Belinda Reeve, who is an Australian lawyer who did her PhD on the rights of children to be uh, not influenced by corporates. And I asked her why she got so interested in the whole question of legality and rights around children's food. That's a very good question. I actually came at this issue from the perspective of public health law. So I have an undergraduate degree in law and my PhD was also in law. Um, And I was particularly interested in public health law, which is the role of law in creating the conditions for people to live healthy lives. And one of the focuses of public health law at the moment is on non-clinical disease prevention. Um, So when I was thinking about a potential PhD topic, obviously something that came to mind was obesity prevention and non-communicable disease prevention. And I was particularly interested in childhood obesity prevention. And one measure that was being proposed at the time when I was doing my PhD was regulation of unhealthy food marketing to children. Um, So that's I, I came into this topic from the perspective of law and regulation. Um, And from there, I became increasingly interested in childhood nutrition and children's eating habits and how the way that children eat and what they eat is affected by um, commercial influences, including marketing. So, I mean, what you're primarily arguing, which I find fascinating because I think we need, I always say we need nasty lawyers in, in health. Uh, not that you're nasty, but you know what I mean, that because ultimately they're lawyers are people that understand policy and how to hold companies to account. And your starting point, I think, is that unhealthy food marketing infringes children's rights as found in the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So the paper that I wrote with Professor Elizabeth Hansley at Flinders University argues that unhealthy food marketing to children infringes rights found in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And this isn't a new argument. Public health advocates have been making this argument for quite a number of years. I think what's different about our paper is that we try and go into some detail on what particular articles of the convention might be infringed by unhealthy food marketing to children. And that builds on some of the work that Elizabeth Hansley's done uh, with some other colleagues. Yeah, that's what I found fascinating, because although the paper is 40 pages long, and I normally only read abstracts, I actually read this. It's very readable, and it is also very important in its detail, because, as you say, you unpick a lot of these issues. Now, um, what are the international instruments, if you like, that aim to translate rights into concrete measures for businesses to implement? Well, there's quite a few, and your listeners may know this already, but under international law, human rights treaties don't impose obligations on businesses and individuals. So what happens with international human rights treaties is that member states sign on to these. There is a growing movement to try and impose human rights obligations directly onto businesses. And one of the instruments that tries to do this um, is what is known as as the guiding principles. Um, These were developed by John Ruggie, the UN Special Representative on Business and Human Rights. Right. He, um, he developed these principles in 2005, and they were based on what he referred to as the Protect, Respect, and Remedy Framework. So that framework included the state duty to protect human rights against abuses by third parties, including businesses. Um, But it also incorporated as a second pillar the corporate responsibility to respect human rights, which in essence, according to John Ruggie, meant to act with due diligence to avoid infringing on the rights of others. And then the third pillar was enhanced remedy, uh, access to remedies for victims. So that is one of the key instruments that tries to impose human rights obligations directly onto businesses. 
It's a voluntary instrument in the sense that it, it doesn't impose mandatory obligations on businesses, um, but it provides a framework for them to translate their sermon. And another instrument that we also talk about in the paper is the Children's Rights and Business Principles, which were developed by UNICEF Save the Children and the Global Compact. And again, they're quite similar to, and they're based on the guiding principles, but they refer specifically to child rights and to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And again, they try and translate the rights contained in that treaty into a series of obligations for businesses to adopt. So... Just, um, uh, right, my, my first response as a sceptic would be to say we've got endless UN principles. And first of all, it depends on states uh, signing up to those uh, uh, conventions on human rights. I think the Americans have still not signed the UN Convention on Children's Rights. I think they're the only non-signatories. So how can we, you know, give... No, I, I don't think it can be done in a voluntary way, and particularly in relation to the guiding obligation, uh, the guiding principles and the obligations that they put on businesses. It's difficult really to say that they've had any practical impact on businesses' behaviour. There are a number of large businesses that say that they have adopted the approach set out in the guiding principles, but really there's no evidence that it's had any practical impact on whether or not businesses are infringing people's human rights. Um, and there are a number of academics who are very critical of the guiding principles and the fact that they're entirely voluntary. Um, there's no kinds of monitoring. Well, actually, there are some monitoring mechanisms attached to the principles, but there's no way of enforcing them. And they're not mandatory, so there's no way to make companies comply with them. It's entirely voluntary. Um, so I... I do think that we need to add some teeth to these kinds of systems. Um, some of the ways that we could add teeth to these kinds of initiatives include um, things like making them mandatory and making them enforceable through the criminal law, for example. That's quite a contentious measure, and it would be quite politically difficult. There was an attempt by the UN to develop a binding set of principles on human rights and business conduct, and that failed, and Ruggy was very aware of that, and that's why he put together a set of voluntary principles. But even if we can't do that, I think there are probably some other steps that we could take as well. Um, so that could include things like uh, making sure that companies disclose the full methodology and results of the processes that they use to assess uh, whether or not they're infringing human rights. Um, we could also try and name and shame companies that don't adhere to the guiding principles through things like negative publicity and other soft sanctions. So there are some things that we could do to strengthen the guiding principles without necessarily making them mandatory. Well, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, we should go back and first say a word or two about the rise of multinational food companies. And in your paper, you do that and give some quite scary figures that basically multinational food is now controlled by an oligarchy, just a few big players. So Coca-Cola, Pepsi and Nestle total over 40% of all food and drink sales. And a company I'd never heard of, Cargill, the largest, largest privately owned company in the US, has global sales of $71 billion and controls nearly half of the global grain trade. So in a sense, we've got that, that helps us because we've got a few really big players who we could try to influence. But the other thing that you said, which really struck me, was about children and their perception of advertising. And you say that, uh, which I didn't know, actually, but it's not really until at least the age of eight that children differentiate between advertising and just being told a story. And so advertising to children up to that age is really dangerous because it sets them on a, on a path for thinking particular kinds of foods and what should be in their diet. 
Yes, that, that's absolutely right. And it's only about around the age of 12 that children develop the ability to actually critically engage with advertising and to really understand that it has a persuasive intent. And that's uh, one component of the argument that advertising unhealthy food to children um, is an infringement of their rights because really you're exploiting the fact that they don't have the cognitive capacity to distinguish between advertising and editorial content. And and also it can be the case that 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 marketing can have a long-term impact on children. So they're a key target market. One of the why food companies advertise to children. And we know that... um as you've pointed out, that there is an association between commercial television viewing and advertising and increased body mass index. And that's not just because of, you know, watching telly means they're eating junk food or not exercising. It's independent of that, that they are influenced by uh, marketing. And of course, marketing is not just about TV anymore. It's about the internet. It's about all kinds of media outlets. That's absolutely true. And companies are increasingly moving their advertising spend to digital media. And particularly in relation to children, that's very problematic because it's even more difficult. Um, And we also know that digital marketers have the ability to use information about how people use the internet, about how people engage with advertising. They can use that information to target marketing to children and young people more effectively. Yeah. Um, now, the, the the next issue is, of course, that companies are not innocent bystanders. They try to get heavily involved in policy making at national level. Um, I, I've just been working for the World Health Organization for three years, and one of the things I did like about WHO is that they had very strict rules. That's called FENSA rules, Framework for Engagement with Non-State Actors which does keep us apart from uh, commercial influence in a way that a lot of other agencies are not. But is this a major problem, you think, at national level? It is. One problem is that unlike the industry, national governments governments are engaging with the food industry when it comes to policymaking around food and nutrition. Um, it's, I mean, it's difficult to say with a, without empirical evidence, but it does seem like often this leads to countries introducing weaker initiatives that privilege industry interests over public health interests. And we also know that the food industry lobbies against public health measures that they see as detrimental to their interests. And they also appear to be using techniques that have been used by the tobacco industry as well. So really, when you have these companies who are lobbying so strongly against effective forms of law and regulation, there's a real question around whether they should be considered legitimate players or legitimate um, whether they should legitimately have a seat at the table when it comes to policy making. Well, next week is the World Health Assembly, and I've been at the last two where um, resolutions were put forward. One was on marketing of uh, follow-on milks, breast milk substitutes, which we know can damage breastfeeding. Another was on the uh, the child obesity strategy. And another one was on the non-communicable disease strategy. And what was interesting about all three was that they were blocked uh, for the uh, milk um, resolution It was blocked by the European Union, by America and by New Zealand, all the big dairy producers for the ending childhood obesity. And and by the way, that was during the Obama um, uh, regime, not not under Trump. And last year they blocked the obesity and the NCD resolutions after many, many countries had stood up to support it. And it was blocked by the United States of America because they thought it would uh, damage their food industry, uh, and for the NCD one also by Italy. So, uh, and because you need unanimity, of course, these resolutions weren't passed. So, a lot of the lobbying is by proxy that these companies hold and exert their influence over politicians, which block 
WHO or dilute the recommendations coming from WHO? That's a very good point. And I think you've also just demonstrated how food companies can influence policymaking at a global level as well as a national level. Yeah, the the big problem, I, I spoke to a very senior person in WHO who had a lot to do with the uh, framework convention on tobacco. And he said it, you know, from the time that they marshaled all the evidence showing the damaging effects of tobacco, it took them 15 years to really get countries to sign up to all of this. Um, and he said with food, it's going to be twice as difficult or even more. I was just going to say as well, I I mean, I think the other thing that we need to recognise is that there are a range of different actors in the food industry. Although we talked before about the fact that there is a sort of oligarchy within the food industry where the global food system is dominated by a handful of large players, there's a huge range of different companies. And it, it perhaps is possible that there are some companies or food producers or growers maybe that we can work with. Whereas I think with the tobacco industry, it's fairly clear that there's no there's no entity within the tobacco industry that we could work with, that public health actors could work with effectively. I'm not sure that's necessarily true with the food industry. I think there could be some smaller producers and food growers, particularly at a local level, who we can say that their interests are in some respects aligned with public health in a way that is not true with some of the larger food companies. Yeah, you you actually mentioned some of the WHO things like the set of recommendations on the marketing of foods and non-alcoholic beverages to children. And at first you you're a little critical saying that it, you know actually there's not much mentioned about the food industry and advertising and simply refers to things like initiatives or pledges. But I suspect that my colleagues at WHO had to water things down in order to get it even close to being passed as a resolution. Um, Yes, I think that's true. I I should mention that my criticism in that respect is to do with the fact that the principles on children's rights and business practices that I discussed before, it says that businesses should... Uh, follow the principles set down in any World Health Assembly instruments, and then it refers to the World Health recommendations on unhealthy food marketing to children. But I, I find that really interesting because those recommendations, the WHO recommendations, don't really say anything about businesses. They don't put obligations on businesses. They're mainly directed to states. Yeah. They only say that this businesses should adopt marketing principles that um, accord with the objectives of the recommendations, which are to reduce children's exposure to and the persuasive power of unhealthy food marketing. Um, so that's, that's really what my critique of the recommendations relate to. Certainly, I think they could have been stronger, but I agree that you're right, that in all likelihood, the World Health Organization, the people there had to, there was a bit of a political compromise there. They probably thought that it was better to get something through rather than nothing at all. Yeah, and it's a member state organization. But uh, so in a sense, that's its audience that it's always aware of rather than, uh, you know, going for businesses. But I just want to come back. So there's a great quote that you give from the UN special rapporteur on the right to food called Hilal Elva. And he says that the rise of industrial food production combined with trade liberalisation, which is a big issue, has allowed large corporations to flood the global market with cheap, nutrient-poor foods that force poor people to choose between their economic interests and nutrition. This is a huge issue. As a paediatrician, you know, we've seen a doubling of obesity in Western countries. Uh, You've now got a double burden of malnutrition in poorer countries like India, where you've still got malnutrition in the rural poor in its traditional sense, but now you've got growing numbers of obese children, in, particularly in urban populations. So this is a huge huge public health issue that's not going to go away and I'm just wondering can I be provocative and say should there be criminal prosecution should we go back to the idea of really trying to get lawyers to hit these companies bottom line unless they come into line because 
I, I think that's a really interesting question, and I, I don't know if the use of the criminal law is always appropriate, but certainly I agree with the idea that we need a way of sanctioning companies and a way of hitting their bottom line hard. And in many countries, what we're actually seeing is that that states are introducing legislative measures. So they're not just relying on voluntary measures by the food industry to uh, responsibly market to children or to reformulate their products. They're actually introducing legislation that restricts advertising to particular times or places or uh, requiring uh, companies to uh, ensure that there is only a certain amount of salt in particular categories of processed product. And presumably there are penalties attached to companies that fail to comply with those legislative uh, provisions. So there are examples of, of countries that are moving towards trying to hit companies harder uh, than Australia is. But I think what we're seeing is that it's still very patchy. So we've got some countries like Chile that are doing some really great things when it comes to obesity prevention. And they are making use of law and regulation. Uh, but then we still have other countries like Australia, which predominantly relies on collaborative measures with the food industry or industry self-regulation, which research shows is not particularly effective. Yeah, and it's not all bad news. I mean, the last count, I think 26 or or probably more countries now have introduced sugar taxes, which I think is very important. And in Britain, I think they were quite clever. They gave fair warning of sugar taxes linked to the amount of sugar in drinks. And the companies, the big companies, have responded by uh, dropping the sugar contents of of, uh, their drinks so that they don't get hit by these tariffs. I've noticed that um, WHO partnering with the Bloomberg Initiative is to remove trans fatty acids from foods by 2023. And I suspect that that will have some impact because companies won't be wanting to see, you know, be seen to be infringing that. So there are things happening. And of course, you're up against the, if you like, the libertarians who say, you know, we mustn't have a nanny state, let the market decide. But I think in the case of children, that's a nonsense, personally. Yes, I mean, the argument that the food industry makes and that uh, neoliberalists make in relation to children is that parents should be taking responsibility for what children eat and that parents have predominant responsibility for ensuring that their children have a nutritious diet. I think the counter-argument to that is that, um, as the quote that you mentioned before comes at we live in an environment that's completely saturated with unhealthy food and with marketing for those unhealthy products and in that kind of situation I think we can actually conceptualise state intervention as supporting parents in trying to make sure that their children have healthy diets. Um, I, I don't think we need to necessarily have a kind of dichotomy between parental responsibility or state responsibility for children. Right. Um, I think we can say that states are trying to support parents. Yeah, and I, you know, again, uh, I, I read last week that the Mayor of London has said that he wants to ban all junk food advertising across the, you know, the, the travel networks, um, which is good. And, and maybe we're going to need to move much more rigorously or encourage states to, to, to stop children being bombarded during viewing times. But that's, that's a difficult uh, one as well. So, I, I mean, I, I think it's a mix of carrot and stick, isn't it? I think we've got to push hard on, encouraging states to regulate appropriately. Um, there are some companies, you've suggested, to my surprise, one that um, Nestle and um, Unilever, two of the biggest companies, have tried to engage with the business principles uh, for for rights. So there's some cause for optimism there. But it strikes me that we need to get the lawyers, particularly the lawyers, together with the public health community to find ways in which we can get a balance that, you know, allows economies to proceed as they should do, but also protects children from these very negative effects. Certainly. There are a number of 
uh, researchers who have a law background who are working on uh, the role of law in preventing non-communicable disease. And I think that the benefits that lawyers bring is that often they can provide very detailed proposals of how law can be used to um, you know, to, to do things like regulate food companies. They also may come up with options that people without a law background might not have thought about. Um, so part of the work that I've done, um, particularly with Professor Roger Magnuson, who's based at the law faculty with me, we've actually tried to outline how there's a spectrum of regulatory options in between self-regulation and uh, statutory regulation. So you have other options like co-regulation as well, so I think the, the, one of the real benefits of lawyers is that they can um, they can help sort of showcase all of the different options. They can help to evaluate whether those options are going to be effective. Um, and they also have expertise in putting together fairly detailed proposals in terms of what a new piece of legislation might look like as well. Ah, that's interesting. And I'm going to put your paper on the podcast, you know, link to it. But have you got um, another... Uh, document which lists those kind of options? Uh, yes, I do. So, Roger and I have done some work on product formulation, and we've got a paper there, another another long one, unfortunately, although we might have a short version too, and we talk about different regulatory options that are available. So, I can certainly provide you with one of those too. Well, I'm feeling a, uh, some kind of conference coming on here. I kind of think that we should formally get people together around regulatory options um i know i i know from my colleagues in nutrition and elsewhere in who they'd be keen to do that but it might be better not to do it at who yet for free and open discussion probably without industry in the first instance but then maybe engaging with industry in a way that tries to set standards that we could you know that they could all live up to the other thing of course is that being positive um i don't know if you know about the eat forum which was set up by gunhild stordalen in norway which is very much into making sustainable food systems locally resourced food systems very healthy food systems uh chic and attractive and uh something that people aspire to because uh, in theory, there should be no incompatibility between a very ethical business and also a successful one. That, yeah, I think that's that's true. And I, I'm also very encouraged by what's happening at a local level. Um, often, some of the most promising interventions, particularly regulatory measures, are happening at a local level, um, as illustrated by your reference before to uh, London's mayor removing junk food marketing from trains and buses in London. Yeah. Um, and, and also I think the idea of encouraging things like urban agriculture and local businesses, local food businesses, I think that offers a kind of counterpoint to this industrialised food system that we have that's dominated by these large food companies. So I think there's really... You're right in saying that there's some uh, there's reason to be optimistic there as well. Yeah, good. Well, it's good to end on a fairly optimistic note. Um, I mean, in summary, what would you, if you were going to give, you know, your elevator pitch of three or four recommendations to people, uh, what might they be based on the, the work that you've done? I mean, if I was making a recommendation to government, I would say in relation to unhealthy food marketing for children, um, I would like to see statutory regulation of that if states don't have that in place already. Um, if we're talking about companies, I'd like to make the argument that companies should see unhealthy food marketing to children as a child rights issue and as something that they should address when they're undertaking human rights due diligence as well. Um, and then I guess my third one would be that I think there's certainly scope for strengthening things like the guiding principles to make them demanding and to ensure that companies are actually complying with their recommendations. Belinda, that's fantastic. Thank you. We must stay in close touch because I think this is such an important issue. I think the whole uh, of public health these days is related to how we get this 
fair balance between economic interests and health interests, of which food is just one part. I mean, fossil fuels, tobacco, alcohol, we will come back to those issues. But I think your paper is great. And uh, thank you very much for, for joining me today. Okay, thanks very much for listening this week. If you know someone who might benefit from this podcast, please do tell them. Help us to grow our community and do check out or sign up to my blog at www.anthonycostello.net where indeed the papers uh, and books of Gay Palmer and Belinda Reeve uh, are listed. If you sign up, you'll get an email every week which links to my blogs or podcast. Hope you're enjoying the World Cup. Have a great week. Bye.